There was a funny skit from an old TV show about this annoying guy in a video store who keeps telling anyone who will listen that he's an actor and that he had the titular line in various famous movies. The joke being that none of these movies actually had a titular line at all. Yeah, yeah, I had the, uh, the titular line in Out of Africa, he tells one customer. Yeah, I was in the movie and I said, man, I can't wait to get out of Africa. And then he goes on to tell the guy that he also had the titular line in Star Wars. Yeah, I was in that movie too. I was, I was like, man, I'm so tired of these Star Wars. <laughs> well, this sermon includes the titular line, if you will, or rather word, of this whole sermon series, Foundation. Our text today is all about building a strong and sustainable foundation that can weather any storm. Here we receive a parable from Jesus about the so-called end times. Remember that Jesus was a doomsday preacher, after all, often warning folks of coming catastrophes. Frankly, I'm beginning to feel a little like one of those myself these days with everything that's going on in the world, warning of fire and famine and flood. In this text today, Jesus warns us of the dangers of building one's proverbial house upon shifting sands, and that in following his teachings, we build upon a foundation of solid rock. When the floods come, will our house stand? And the floods are indeed coming, friends, in one form or another. The folks down in Florida this week, or in Nova Scotia, or in Pakistan, are seeing it firsthand. And Jesus begs the question, when the proverbial and literal floodwaters arrive, will we be prepared? Or will we bury our heads in the sand and hope for the best? Our reading today is from Matthew 7, verses 24 through 27. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, and beat against that house, and great was its fall. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. When the night shows, the signals grow 
on radios All the strange things they come and go as early warnings Stranded starfish have no place to hide Still waiting for the swollen Easter tide There's no point in direction We cannot even choose a side I took the old track, the hollow shoulder Across the water on the tall cliffs they were getting older Sons and daughters The jaded underworld was riding high Waves of steel heard metal at the sky And as the nail sunk in the cloud The rain was warm and soaked the crowd Here comes the flood We will say goodbye to flesh and blood If again the seas are silent in any still alive It'll be those who gave their island to survive Drink up, dreamer you're running dry When the flood calls You have no home You have no walls In the thunder crash You're a thousand miles Within a flash Don't be afraid to cry At what you see The actor's gone There's only you and me If we break before the dawn, they'll use up what we used to be. Lord, here comes the flood. We'll say goodbye to flesh and blood. If again the seas are silent and any still alive. Please pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you. May they be in keeping with the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Imagine, if you will, a family enjoying a picnic by the side of the road. Now, these aren't especially responsible people, mind you, so they've left behind the debris of their lunch as they climb back into the car to resume their road trip. Cans of Coca-Cola lie overturned and strewn about the grass alongside plastic Ziploc bags and the remains of sandwich crusts. 
Towering above it all, a half-eaten bag of potato chips looms large. It's not that large, of course, unless you happen to be an ant. But let's just say for a moment that you are an ant, drawn by the sense who happens to stumble upon the remains of this gathering. The aluminum soda cans and plastic bags would seem impossibly gargantuan and equally mysterious. What are these things for? You don't know what these brightly colored artifacts are or what they're for or what breed of monster might have left them behind. This scene is the operative metaphor of the 1972 novel by Arcadian Boris Strugatsky called Roadside Picnic. In the story, the earth is briefly visited by aliens who leave behind strange objects, artifacts of unknown origin. These visitors come and go unseen, human beings apparently beneath their notice or concern. The only evidence of their visit or their existence is this collection of strange relics, technology so bizarre and advanced that it defies human understanding. Some of these things exert gravitational fields that defy everything we think we know about physics. Others have healing properties that border on the miraculous. Now, it's not that these objects are especially large in a literal sense, but their nature is so alien, so far beyond us that we can't hope to grasp them in any meaningful way. Naturally, in the story, that doesn't stop people from trying to profit off of them. In the novel, opportunists known as stalkers venture into the areas that these extraterrestrials have visited to collect these dangerous artifacts and sell them on the black market, exploiting these resources for personal gain. And in the novel, one of these guys asks a fellow stalker, if he thinks this is all, you know, maybe not such a good idea. That depends on our luck, the other guy replies. Of course, it's possible that by randomly pulling chestnuts out of this fire, we'll eventually stumble on something that will make life on Earth completely unbearable. That would be bad luck. But you have to admit, that's a danger humanity has always faced. Indeed. Humankind has often dabbled in matters that we can seldom grasp, exploiting resources for profits because we can. And we don't always stop to ask ourselves if we should. About 10 years ago, a philosopher named Timothy Morton coined a phrase that can help us to grapple with things that are impossibly large and beyond our comprehension. He calls them hyper-objects, and he defines them as, quote, entities of such vast temporal and spatial dimensions that they defeat traditional ideas about what a thing is in the first place. Now, we're not just talking about something really big, like a, like a really big building or even a whole city. According to an interview with Wired magazine, Morton's hyper-objects are, quote, Things like black holes, oil spills, all plastic ever manufactured, capitalism, tectonic plates, and the solar system. 
hyperobjects are often ancient or destined to be, like the sum total of styrofoam and plutonium we have littered across the earth over the past century, which will remain for millennia. A human being may see evidence of hyperobjects, pollution here, a hurricane there, but try gazing off into the distance to see the totality of them, or to the very end of them, and they disappear into a vanishing point." End quote. While lacking consciousness or sentience, hyperobjects bear a resemblance to gods with a lowercase g. They define the parameters of our existence, dictate our future, and escape our comprehension. And one of them looms especially large these days, that being the thing that we call global warming or climate change or the climate crisis, a quintessential hyper-object. The carbon in the atmosphere, the rising temperature, the weather patterns, the ocean currents, the Arctic ice, all of this comprises this massive object, if you will, that we cannot really hope to grasp in its entirety, but we can know it in part, and the parts that we can see are concerning. The tip of a rapidly melting iceberg emerging from the surface of troubled waters. Now we've understood at least something about this phenomenon, this hyperobject, since the 1950s, though some fringe scientists had predicted human-driven climate change as early as 1896. But we ignored the science for decades, favored profits, exploited the earth, and pursued a fantasy of infinite economic growth on a finite planet. We built a global economy fueled by the oily, oily fossils of long-dead creatures and ascended to technological heights and prosperity that our ancestors could scarcely have imagined. Large-scale agriculture, also dependent on fossil fuels, has allowed our population to grow exponentially. But without the fuel, the Earth can't sustain 8 billion people. And now we find ourselves between a rock and a hard place, between the devil and the deep blue sea, in a position of ecological overshoot, utterly dependent on the very thing that is also choking the biosphere. All of the troubles and existential threats that plague our world pale before the climate crisis, which touches everything. And we are already experiencing its dramatic effects as drought and famine and flood wreak havoc in places across the world. According to a pretty new scientific study by the British Antarctic Survey that I think just came out last month, the Thwaites Glacier in West Antarctica is, quote, hanging on by its fingernails. And when the ice shelf collapses in approximately three to five years, according to this study, a glacier the size of Florida will slide into the ocean, raise sea levels by 10 feet. 10 feet in as little as three to five years. Imagine what's happening in Florida right now, today, all up and down the eastern seaboard and beyond, and you begin to see the scale of the problem. Now, some believe that technology is the answer 
And it might yet be, but that remains to be seen. As Einstein said, we cannot solve our problems with the same thinking that we used when we created them. Renewables like wind and solar are awesome, and we ought to pursue those. We ought to pursue every technological avenue at our disposable disposal. But even those rely on fossil fuels for materials and maintenance. Locally, they're incredibly useful, but I don't know if they can replace oil and natural gas on a global scale. Now, if we'd started making a serious energy transition 30 years ago, we'd be in a much better place, but we didn't. And as it stands, we're still clinging to the old paradigms, still pursuing business as usual, still sacrificing at the altars of old gods, and nothing gets done unless it's immediately profitable. Now, profit is not inherently bad, okay? It's, it's okay to buy and sell and earn, a, uh, and earn an honest day's wage, but unregulated systems that prioritize profits over people and the planet are a serious problem. I read a post online recently that I thought was really interesting. Um, take it as you will, but it's food for thought. Predatory capitalism was not, was not created by any one single person, it reads. It's a centuries-old gestalt entity that predates everyone alive today and has dictated how we and our ancestors have lived since the moment we were born. It acts almost like a global artificial intelligence with the sole programmed goal of growth, and it uses markets to organize human workers toward this goal. No one person can slay such a behemoth, the author muses. It requires collective action, humans themselves operating as a gestalt being, a hyperobject, to even stand a chance. So how does one fight a god, even one with a lowercase g? Sure, humanity as a whole is a kind of hyperobject too. Unfortunately, we cannot seem to cooperate as a single entity, except when we're consuming everything in sight. Friends, we live in the Anthropocene an era of geological time that's defined by human industrialization and supremacy. We have declared ourselves the unchallenged rulers of this earth, the master species, the pinnacle of evolution. And this anthropocentric hubris predates our technological dominance. It's right there in the first pages of the Bible. When God gives Adam the first human authority over every plant that grows and every animal that crawls upon the earth. This is a powerful narrative, an idea that has shaped the entire world in our image. But what if it's wrong? What if it was always wrong? I read an essay recently, a piece called, It's a Termite's World an allegory about the most dangerous illusion. And the illusion in question, according to the author, is this very assumption of human superiority. Countless generations grew up believing this lie and lived their lives according to it, the author writes. 
But the inescapable biological reality is that the world was not made for us any more than it was made for horseflies, elephants, or termites. We inhabit it, yes, and we are convinced that we are its lords and masters with an obviousness that is baffling. But if you go and ask the world herself whom she belongs to, her answer will most definitely not be to the humans. Depending on your perspective, the world belongs to none of us or to all of us. The author goes on to illustrate an allegory about termites, imagining a world in which an abundant food source allowed them to proliferate exponentially, lending them a sense of assumed superiority. He imagines a world in which the termites begin to eliminate their predators and engineer their biomes in favor of the kind of softwood trees that they really like, until their interference with the ecosystem results in unforeseen consequences, and in time, their civilization finally crumbles. His point is that human supremacy is more an accident of conditions and circumstances than some kind of inherent virtue. But what of God, you might be wondering right about now? Aren't we God's beloved children? Aren't we God's people? Certainly. But now I have to tell you the same thing that I tell my kids. Namely that, yes, you are special. And so is everyone else. God is love. God loves all of creation. God loves us. And if we loved creation as much as God does, we might not find ourselves in this predicament. This teaching from Jesus that we heard this morning is essentially a teaching about humility, about vulnerability. He compares those who follow his words and his encouragement to love one another to a person who builds her house on solid rock, a strong foundation. And when the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, it did not fall because it had been founded on rock, Jesus tells us. But those who did not listen, those who believe in their own superiority, suffer a different fate. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and the house fell. And how great was its fall, Jesus warns us. Collectively, friends, as a society, we have built our house on sand. This isn't our fault. It's not your fault, personally, any more than it is mine, any more than it's a fish's fault for swimming in the ocean. It's the world we were all born into, the system we were all forced to participate in. We aren't superior beings. We're at the mercy of these hyper-objects, forces so powerful and vast that we cannot hope to grasp them, much less control or fight them. What then are we to do? What can we do? If we're all part of a system, a grand illusion that is slowly killing our world, how do we escape from its grasp? Our first task, the author of the termite allegory states, has to be to dismantle this illusion, to grasp its obscenity. 
Only then, I think, can we even begin to live a little differently, or a lot differently, a little closer to the earth like the ants and termites do, like perhaps we were always meant to. Only then can we become a part of God's ecosystem instead of being a cog in the sputtering machine that we've all unconsciously built. Humans need to learn how to commune with one another and with nature again, with the world that God made. And at this table, we remember what communion really means. It means joining together in love instead of exploiting one another for profit. It means coming forward as you are vulnerable instead of pretending that you're invincible or superior. It means being a part of creation instead of trying to dominate it. It means heeding Jesus' teachings to love everyone and everything that God made instead of relying on our own doomed creations. Friends, burying our heads in the sand won't save us when the flood comes, no more than building our house on sand will. But maybe, maybe if we build our house, our church, on something more solid, on a foundation of humility and love, and yes, hope, then maybe we can still save the things that really matter. Amen.